2: Last week's verdict in the trial of Derek Chauvin was the start on a path toward accountability. It provided a moment of relief and for some a moment of hope. But in just the 24 hours after that verdict, six more people have been killed by police officers, including 16-year-old Makia Bryant of Ohio. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later we'll talk about how organizations in Connecticut are continuing to combat vaccine hesitancy and promote greater access. But the conversation around the Chauvin verdict got me thinking about how we talk to young people about these incidents, and in particular, students. How do we incorporate these conversations into broader work being done around diversity, equity, and inclusion? So I decided to start at the place where I work. Dr. Don C. Sawyer III is Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and Associate Professor of Sociology at Quinnipiac University. We've been working on these issues together for years, long before the George Floyd murder prompted national attention. I asked him how he approaches the work and why it's critical to engage students.
3: So I think it is important for us to understand, as you stated, that this work is not new. Um, you know, I've been doing this work for a while and you've been doing this work, even when it wasn't a part of your ac- of, of your actual title, um, because this work is something that we are committed to. And so I think in this day and age, DEI work has been changed forever since the murder of George Floyd. And one of the things I think is important for students to understand is the context that we place this in. Um, I was on a panel not too long ago, and one of the panelists quoted one of his mentors who stated that, History doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes, right? And so when we think about the fact that what's happening now is not the same thing as what happened you know, back in our past for our ancestors, but it's very similar and it rhymes. And I think it's important for students to understand the context that they are existing in, understanding what's happening um, right now is, is not new, but they also have to be committed to making making this change. And so one of the other things that I've been working with students on is in the beginning of it, you know, students were like, they, they they were feeling emboldened, they were feeling empowered because their peers were surrounding them and saying, yes, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. And then as the school year went along, those people and those voices started to go away and these students of color were left there holding the bags by themselves and it caused some emotional harm. And so I've been working with students to kind of get through that piece.
2: There will be people who say, look, I don't send my kid to college or to a university to care about social justice. I I send them there to learn, or I send them there to prepare for a career. What is the balance for colleges and universities to engage in these national and really international conversations while still understanding that it has to be a space where various views can flourish and also be recognized?
3: And so when when we think about what happened over the past year and the number of, of companies that have come out with statements, the number of companies and other institutions that have developed diversity plans. And so, you know, before this time, if you wanted to act as if these things didn't exist and you just wanted to come to school and learn and get a job. Well, guess what your jobs are now starting to pay attention to these things and so you need to be well versed in these things as well you know gone are the days where you think you're going to come out of you know, college and go and work with people who look like you and believe the same things as you. Like we're, we're living in a global space or you're working in a global marketplace. And so these things matter. And so when you think about the changing demographics of the nation, um, we understand by 2050 that the, the nation is going to be majority people of color. And so if you're not willing to invest in these initiatives, if you're not willing to pay attention and understand what the landscape is looking like, I think that you're going to be at a loss. Now, the interesting thing that we have to think about is when we say that it's, it's, it's been a year, it's almost a year. I believe if I'm not mistaken, George Floyd was murdered in May. We, we, we know the statements that universities released. We know the statements that companies released. And so I think it's going to be interesting to reflect back on the year to see if anything actually changed, right? Because people were playing, paying a lot of lip service and saying that black lives matter, black lives matter. But a year later, I wanna see how your company has showed and exhibited that Black Lives Matter and the changes of the structure, the policies, the practices of your organization, institution, or corporation.
2: After the, the murder of George Floyd, after we were learning of additional acts of violence, many people started to reach out and say, what do we do? And often that question was directed to people who were bearing the emotional weight and the emotional labor of doing that, and that felt that there was a disconnect. And you have been very honest in talking about that for you and for many others, this is not a theoretical experience, that this is deeply personal. And in a letter to the community, you say, when I think about the state of our nation and all that has been happening, my heart is heavy. I wish we lived in a world where these messages were unnecessary, but that is not our reality. I'm hurting. How do you work through that hurt to create the kinds of communities and spaces that you think are necessary to be affirming and recognizing that if you as someone who is an established scholar in this field, someone who works in this area, if you're experiencing that, how does that connect to what students are facing as well?
3: And, and so I, I went back and forth with whether or not I would be vulnerable in, in my message to the community, right? And, and talking about my heart being heavy and the fact that I hurt, because I think sometimes they assume that as a black leader, I, I sometimes feel that people think I'm immune to the pain that we see. Or that we experience and and i'm not like i've been black my whole life (laughs) and so i've experienced these things and i'm not immune to it i mean i've built up a skill set to help me work through um existing as a black man in the united states but i think it's important for our students to understand that it's okay to feel pain and feel what you feel um and to seek resources to talk with people use counseling you know i talk with my therapist about these things because it impacts our psyche. I mean, you and I, we talk about the fact that we don't watch those videos. Like, people are sharing these videos and these images. I don't need to see it in order to know that there are some issues that we need to deal with, right? I just remember accidentally seeing that video of Philando Castillo. And from that moment on, I just stopped. Like, like, I had a headache. I was breathing differently. My chest was tight, and I was having reactions based on this vicarious trauma. And so, as a as as a way of self care, I don't watch those videos anymore. And I ask my students, like, cut off. Like, you don't have to watch these videos, videos because sometimes people think that if we we watch it, it doesn't happen. It doesn't do anything to us because it's not happening to us. And I think that's not true right we experience vicarious trauma and it starts to show itself in our bodies and if we don't release it it starts to manifest itself in 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 the ways in which our body feels pain you might start to get headaches you might change the way that you breathe your your ankles and your knees might start to crick and creak and i mean of course with me i'm getting older so that's part of it but when we hold these things in our bodies without releasing it does us harm
2: Let's talk about that release and the essential part of healing, of acknowledging what people are feeling also means that we have to be willing to say that and then create a space for people to work through that. One of the things that you have brought to the university are what you're calling these community healing sessions and conversations where people can be open, where they can engage in dialogue but you're also connecting the university community with the broader community where we sit of bringing in facilitators. Why do you think those kinds of sessions are important, particularly for young people who are trying to work through this repeated collective trauma?
3: I think healing is necessary in order for us to move forward. I think far too often in institutions of higher education, when something happens, it's almost like we're expected to move forward without really spending time to deal with what happened and to start the process of healing. And so uh, when I pitched the idea, I wasn't sure if people were gonna take it seriously or they were like, oh, this brother is out there walking around burning sage or something, right? But I was like, I I think it's important for us to, to one, mark the anniversary of when we shut down as a university, right, due to COVID. But then when we talk about this racial awakening and the uprisings that happened in the street, and with all of the violence and different things that have happened since then, I thought it was an important time to market with at least three sessions for the community to come together because we were not together, right? We, we've been virtual, um, but we haven't come together in a space to kind of share, okay, what has been happening for us? What did we learn about ourselves over the past year? What are the things that we've lost? What are the things that we've gained? What are the things that are gonna help us move forward as a community. And so I think that was an important space to create because the students who came and the faculty and staff, they were able to understand that humanity is a fragile thread that connects all of us, right? And so, you know, attendance wasn't necessarily that high. I think the most that we've had at any session was about 25. But in the emails that I received from our colleagues, they were saying like, this was important. I feel more connected to the institution because we had this space that was provided for us to kind of share with one another and to comfort one another and to have some semblance of peace in that space. And so I think that was an important opportunity for students to see modeling, right? To, to see that, you know, your faculty and staff, we don't have it all together. We're coming to this space to be with one another, to heal along with you. And so I think that was important for them and for everyone who was involved.
2: Let's talk about that coming together and that shared humanity that seems to be so important to the work that you're doing. Quinnipiac University is a predominantly white institution. The student body is about 75% white, although we have seen these changes and increases in diversity. How are students of color being supported in that who experience this in different ways, but also are often seeking the opportunity to simply be heard and to be seen.
3: I think one of the ways that we work with students of color is, you know, through my office, the Department of Cultural and Global Engagement, we have different initiatives, right? We have, you know, our first year immersion program when students are coming in, we have our Quest mentoring program, but we have other programs throughout the year the other piece is through the one-on-one mentoring that, that happens. I mean, one of the things that you and I know, we know that there's this invisible labor that happens specifically for faculty and staff of color who are working with students who are not even their advisees, who, don't, who, who are not necessarily affiliated with any programs that they're with, but they see us as examples, and they assume that we have an understanding about their lived experience, and we work with them through this because I, I think the students who are here right now um, and all of us for that for that matter, are experiencing higher education like it's never been experienced before, right? We're dealing with the pandemic of COVID, we're dealing with the pandemic of, of racism and they're trying to figure it out. And so I think it's important for us to work with them, to challenge them, but to support them, um, and and, uh, along the way. And so that's why I think representation matters because there there are certain conversations that you and I are able to have with students that other people can't have with students, Right? just based on our lived experience and who we are and that connection that we can have with the students. And so I think that's important. Um, The unfortunate piece of it is that sometimes that work that we do, um, faculty and staff of color with our students of color is not seen, right? And so it remains invincible. It's a beautiful thing.
2: What I always find fascinating is that there is a passion and enthusiasm for the work that you do, but you've also been very candid to say that you never wanted to be a chief diversity officer, and yet that is front and center to what you do at the university. Talk to us about how if that was not what you wanted to do, you now find yourself in that space and how you navigate making it more than just diversity work as some people think of it.
3: Yeah, so one of the things in my career is that I don't—I'm not, not doing anything that I plan to do. Um, I believe in the Creator. I believe in the Most High Being, and for some reason, I think He or It laughs when I plan. Right? So I said, I'm never going to be a, a Chief Diversity Officer, and I, I literally articulated that I will never be a Chief Diversity Officer because, as a faculty member, or a staff member, or, or administrator of color. We get pigeonholed into making people into people believing that that's all that we know how to do. And so lo and behold, I am now VP of Equity and Inclusion and a Chief Diversity Officer. But for me, it goes beyond people think that it's just doing diversity training. Right? That's not what it's about. And so when I think about, you know, my role as VP of Equity and Inclusion, it's about partnerships. It's about building community. It's about building um, connections with the community that exists around our institution, right? How, how, th- that's how we have to understand diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's not just for the students, the faculty, and staff that exist on our campus, but how are we utilizing our resources to have to build reciprocal relationships with the communities that surround us, specifically marginalized communities. And so, I think that's all a part of my purview. And it's not just about you know doing diversity training and doing recruitment, but it's about doing the work and creating initiatives that really shape and transform um, and and, and set a new path for the vision of an institution.
2: One of the things that you have said in many spaces is that we have to affirm and claim joy for people wherever they find it. That even when things are heavy, as you acknowledge, and even when people realize that one verdict in a trial does not mean that we've undone racism in the United States— but that if in those moments people can find joy, we have to lift that up because that's what sustained them. So as we come to the conclusion of, of our conversation together, I want to ask you, what is it that brings you joy?
3: Wow, what, what is it that brings me joy? Um, f- from an educator's perspective, what brings me joy is when students have those aha moments. When you plant those seeds and they come around and be like, okay, I understand what you were doing for me and I appreciate you. Or when I get that email from the faculty member that said, you know, I was feeling disengaged. But after coming to that community healing session, I feel like I'm I'm back as a member of the community and I want to do more of these things. That brings me joy because there's certain times where I, I think, you know, does this work even matter? I get so tired. I'm like, you know, this is it worth it? And then I'll get that email from a student from years ago. But like, hey, Professor Sawyer I had you in my class. You remember you were in my I was in your class and now I'm a teacher. And one of the stories that you told, I tell that to all my students now. Right. And so like those are the things that that bring me joy, knowing that the work that I do matters. Um, the work that I do changes the world, even if it's only in my sphere of influence. Um, but that, that's the piece that motivates me and keep me going and keeps me going.
2: Dr. Don C. Sawyer III is Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and Associate Professor of Sociology at Quinnipiac University. Dr. Sawyer, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: Coming up, vaccine hesitancy and access for communities of color. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Back in February, as Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont got his first shot at a predominantly Black church in Bloomfield, he asked local leaders to tell communities of color to step up and do the right thing. Dr. Wisdom Powell is director of the Yukon Health Disparities Institute, and in an interview with WNPR at the time, she said the governor's messaging missed the mark.
0: We're talking over communities of color right now. We're presuming a lot about what communities of color want and need to get to a decision place that would truly uh, represent their desires around vaccine uptake.
2: When the story was reported back in February, Black residents were getting vaccinated at a rate far below white residents, and those disparities remain. As of April, state officials report that whites are more than two times as likely as Latino communities and nearly twice as likely as Black residents to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Earlier this month, I moderated a conversation hosted by Concorp and the Beta Tau Health Equity Initiative about strategies to face this complex issue, vaccine access and hesitancy. Our panelists were Dr. Gary Desir, Chair of Internal Medicine at Yale School of Medicine. Chenea Anako is Regional Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Trinity Health of New England. And Dr. Fred McKinney is the Highsmith Chair of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the Quinnipiac University School of Business. Ask Dr. Desir about his role on the front lines of this challenge and what he's seeing in Black and Brown communities.
1: Black and Brown communities have been significantly more affected. And there are many reasons for that. One of it is that people can't stay home and, and, and shelter in place, so they have to go to work. Um, very often, it was difficult at the beginning to know how you protect yourself. Do you have access to masks or, or you know, gloves and, and those things? And also, it turns out that uh, Black and Hispanic uh, communities, uh, if, if, when they get COVID, they have a, their chances of dying is double, that of white uh, uh, the white population, so one more likely to get infected, and second, it's more severe. So, so we've seen a tremendous number of um, African American and Latinx in the hospital, really sick, and a large number have passed away. So, and it's it's caused tremendous uh, financial burden for a large numbers of people. So that's that's uh, that's complicated um, the recovery, and um, and. This is, this, is, this, is the, uh, this is the state of affairs. And it's no different anywhere else in the country. We, we're seeing the exact same numbers. And our, and our numbers of uh, percentage of mortality is actually quite low compared to other places in New York or, or elsewhere.
2: Chenea, the work that you do at Trinity Health is about addressing issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion across the spectrum. And so much of what Dr. Desir just talked about is not new for people who work in the field, but for community members themselves who have been saying, there's always been a problem about being able to trust that you will be getting the best care, or that the people who will be providing the care trust you to know yourself and to know your body. We can think of uh, Dr. Susan Moore, who was a medical doctor herself, black woman, who was begging for doctors to help her from the things that you've been seeing and the conversations you've been having with black and Brown communities, what has surprised you? And of that, how has it affected the work that needs to be done?
0: So this time last year, we started really um, trying to meet the community where they were at it was so difficult and it really, you know, COVID usurped our way of outreach. We couldn't meet them in church. We couldn't meet them at the barbershops or the hair salons. We had to be very innovative and creative in how we could reach our community to have these conversations. While keeping in mind the um, very prevalent issue of digital divide, not everyone has Wi-Fi access. Not everyone can be privileged enough to be on a webinar and hear this information. And so while we were going through and hearing very early on, some of the things that we did hear that I think, you know, shocked me, but not necessarily because I was already seeing a lot of those conversations happening on social media was the thought that COVID did not impact our community. We were immune to it. We couldn't get it for a variety of many different reasons. And so while a lot of things on social media tends to get legs of its own, this did take Um, take a sort of a quick sweep in our community. And so us as healthcare professionals, while many individuals were alarmed by this, we had to take a step back to really understand why this was actually a belief in our communities. And then so education had to be the next big step, right? How could we educate folks to understand from a the impact that COVID could have if it was to get in many of our communities, especially our urban communities, where we have a lot of our housing that are overpopulated, where we have um, a lack of access, right? Yes, you can have a hospital, you know, within a certain mile radius, but equitable access is what we're constantly dealing with in the U.S. and, and globally, you know, not just in our country. And so education was so important and really getting people where they're at. And I can honestly tell you that a lot of us healthcare professionals, a lot of us health systems, we started too late. We we met people way too late. And so we see and saw the harmful effects of what that looked like and still looks like now. A year later, right? We we reflect back to think, you know, there were millions of people who were alive at one point or are no longer here. And how did how did we let that happen? you know, how were we so reactive and not proactive to ensure that our community was educated and that we were able to completely remove any barriers that they experienced to testing and getting them to these sites, right? Yes, we brought the clinics into these communities. Yes, we promoted um, testing, but were, were our materials at our appropriate reading level was health literacy factored, Were things translated in different languages. A lot of what we did just started too late. And that is something that we have been honest with, something that we have approached head on. Um, And now we're trying to do something different with the vaccine. And so that's where we currently stand now.
2: Let's talk about that data and how the data tells a story that I think the nuance of the story gets overlooked when people just talk about hesitancy. Because often when people talk about hesitancy in Black and brown communities, it is in some way a moral judgment of those communities. And it suggests that they are irrational, that if you know the data, you know the statistics about the impact on these communities, why wouldn't you take that step? But Dr. Desir, part of what's happening in this survey that's being sent out of gauging health trust is about lifting up the why, that hesitancy exists and that it's not about gaslighting people and saying you shouldn't feel this way, but it's about understanding the decades and the sort of life cycle of mistrust that is developed. Talk to us about this survey, about why you see it as an important step in understanding hesitancy, but also shaping the action that can be taken to take it seriously and address a path forward.
1: Yes, uh, I think that's a very good point. The, um, I, think, I think the issue of hesitancy is one of one, one of it is trust. And, and I think that may be a you know, significant issue for both. There are other reasons why people don't want to take a vaccine, but trust seems to be one of the major reasons. And the issue of trust in the health system goes back way back, um, you know, 400 years of, of things that have been chronicled so, so I think there is this, this building distrust of the system. And, um, and I, I understand it. I mean, I'm in the system, I understand the system, but I understand the mistrust. The other thing I think that, that shapes uh, one's um, experience with the health system is one of respect. So if you go to the emergency room or to your physician, do you feel respected or do you feel like the person has your best interests in mind? And I think that's a fundamental issue we need to address. We need to understand and address. So let me give you one example of what we tried to do at the New Haven Hospital with COVID. When we, we put a group of experts together and decided that we wanted to minimize the way people are being treated. If you had COVID and you get admitted to the hospital, we wanted you to get the same treatment regardless of who you were. So we developed a, and the physician or the nurse didn't have to think about it. There was an algorithm you could follow. So we developed an algorithm that said, this is how you treat patients with COVID if they have these these issues. And it was implemented within the health system. We built it into the EHR. And I, I can say that 99% 99% of people got the right treatment when they got to Yale New Haven Hospital. So that's one way to force the system to be colorblind and to, and to treat you, you know, give you the right treatment. So that's just one small, small piece. Um, so the question then is how do, we, how do we talk to people about vaccine? And my approach is usually to give some information and then try to understand what the issues are and try to discuss them and go over them. Sometimes we can't resolve the issue, sometimes we can. That's in my approach for now.
2: Chi, I'm I'm thinking about Dr. Desir's point about how we talk to people. And one of the groups that we are not hearing a lot of conversation with, and I, I emphasize that, is young people. So we may understand why the legacies of the stories of Henrietta Lacks or the Tuskegee experiment may resonate with our elders, but we're not necessarily in conversation with young people about what's driving their views and more importantly, how we can create policy and efforts that is sensitive to and in conversation with that. What's the thing that you're seeing with young people and how do we lift that up so that if we're talking about empowering and healing community, we are not sequestering the needs and concerns of young people off to the side?
0: Absolutely. What we have to acknowledge is the fact that young people also utilize the healthcare system. And although a lot of our country has very ugly episodes of what occurred in the past, um, they still occur today right? We, we see the black maternal health crisis is currently going on right now. We see the impact it's had historically, dating all the way back to the origination of obstetrics and gynecology with Dr. Sims, you know, the father of gynecology and how he plagued on black and brown women. And so, and then we look at where we currently are now. So the impact is still still occurring. Young people are still facing the significant level of discrimination when they utilize healthcare systems, when they utilize clinics, any of these different spaces, right? And so there's this, like I said, this misconception that because of Tuskegee was 50 plus years ago, all of these things were so dated back that it it impacts one generation and not millennials or generation Z. Although the new generation have quick access to communication through social media, through our handheld devices, and it feels like things are easily at our fingertips, they're not being pulled into this conversation. And oftentimes they have so much insight and so much to say when it comes to this. There were a lot of conversations being had around tables with clinical providers who assumed that younger people would would want the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because it was a one-shot deal. They wouldn't have to come back. They wouldn't have to deal with it again. It was kind of quick and easy. But when many young groups were being pulled and focus groups and conversations were being had, they equally showed and stated their hesitancy regarding J&J and why they felt that, hmm, I would hope J&J is not pushed on black and brown communities, especially since it has a lower efficacy rate than the other vaccines, right? And so I think there's oftentimes a generational bias when um, these conversations are being had and we have to ensure that we have all voices at the table especially in the fact that this vaccine is equally accessible to 16-year-olds and above, right? So they're equal. They've suffered through the COVID-19, through the pandemic. They have, their lives have been completely usurped. And so it's so critical and so important, especially they are the next leaders that will be pushing this work forward.
2: So they equally, um, they too do need to be heard as well. Dr. Fred, you are a professor, you are inspiring entrepreneurs, but you're also a columnist. And many of the pieces that you've written have talked about our increasingly polarized political climate in this country. How do we talk about vaccine hesitancy while still addressing the reality that so much of the discussion has been politicized? That instead of focusing on health and access and the well-being of community, it has become partisan and ideological in a way that a lot of the hesitancy is driven by political division.
4: Thank you for the question. Un- unfortunately, um, the, the political environment is and continues to be very toxic. And if you think about um, when uh, this vaccine started uh, over a little bit over a year ago, um, and again, I'm gonna make a political statement, but it's again, an example of the toxicity that we're living in. But we could not have had a worse set of leadership, not because of you know what they think, but because of what they did and what they didn't do in terms of preparing the nation for this pandemic. And they had information. Uh, to deal with the pandemic at an earlier stage, to control things better, to get a better message out to the population. They failed to do their job. And, but they also, not just the issue of, you know, getting the message out to the American people about how to protect yourself and your family and your communities. uh, They even went so far as to say, you know, this is a hoax, Uh, This, you know, they, they set the stage to accelerate the hesitancy, not only in the Black community, but communities across the country. It's Dr. Fred McKinney
2: from the Quinnipiac School of Business. Coming up, we'll hear more from our panel about strategies to confront the racist history of medicine and how we prepare for the next pandemic. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We're continuing our conversation with a panel of experts on breaking down the walls of vaccine hesitancy and increasing access for Black and Brown communities. Our guests are Dr. Gary Desir of Yale School of Medicine, Chanea Anako of Trinity Health of New England, and Dr. Fred McKinney from Quinnipiac University. The conversation was recorded as part of a panel I moderated. It was hosted by the Beta Tau Health Equity Initiative and Concorp. I asked Ms. Anako what she and her team are doing to meet people where they are and increase access to information to make an informed choice.
0: So Dr. Dean, I will honestly tell you the moment, you know, we, before the official announcement came out that J&J was going to be paused, we were having a lot of meetings, um, you know, within closed doors and a health system. And I, I just put my head down, and I was just like, hey, it's, it's, it's coming, because we knew, we knew exactly what the, um, what we were gonna hear from our community members. You know, this was coming right off. We, our health system held a 24-hour vaccine in the city of Hartford, and we were looking to give out 4,000 vaccinations to our community members. And we, you know, there were a lot of individuals who we, we, um. of the key things that we wanted for people to always, is for them to advocate for themselves and to feel like they can make a decision for themselves. So we ensured that we had Pfizer and J&J available. And so the vaccines were well distributed. And then the pause came out a few days after our vax and it was just like this huge lump in the back of my throat because we knew what it would look like when we went back to speak to the community like we do all the time. And so what we had to do is to ensure people, again, to really bring a lot of the Probability, the statistics, and kind of bring it down into more simpler terms to explain to our community members that p- what's factual is we cannot get rid of COVID 19 if a vaccine is not distributed within our community. We cannot obtain herd immunity um, without the vaccine. So, what happens is other communities, like the white communities, get herd immunity, they spend time with each other, they're able to gather around the table come Thanksgiving, come Christmas but we don't want our outcomes seven months from now during the holiday period to bring about the same things that we experienced in 2020. And that's just a reality of it, right? So that's meeting people where they're at. Do you wanna to go to that family gathering in a few weeks? Do you want to see your children graduate, do we eventually want to bring ourselves out of where we currently have been? And to do that is to understand that, to give them information and the tools about the vaccine and its impact that it will have on them and for the community at large. So even though a person may not be wholly worried about their own health, if you want to see your grandma, if you want want grandma to watch your kids, this is what eventually needs to happen. And so I think it's so important that we also get buy in from our community leaders, too, who have face time with the community overall community partners, community leaders, people that they trust. Because oftentimes when as healthcare care professionals it doesn't matter if we look like the community at hand, you come in with the suit and the jacket, you're seen as one of them. We're continuously educating and educating in the right way because there's definitely a wrong way to educate. Um, And we're trying our best to ensure that we don't lose people, where we finally feel like we've got into a space where we've gained some level of trust and level of understanding. And so we can't let this pause completely usurp a lot of the work that we've done and the trust that we've been able to build in some of our communities thus far.
2: For many of us, social distancing is a luxury that we simply don't have. And we connect that to this idea of getting a vaccine of some people saying, look, being able to take those risks or navigate that is a privilege. And we haven't really talked, we've talked about race and ethnicity. We haven't really talked about class and the ways in which class has shaped so much of this debate about hesitancy, but also about access. How do we lift that up so that we are understanding the socioeconomic dimensions of this as we figure out how we build toward healing.
4: Yeah, and that's that's an excellent point. I mean, what what we found in our review of the literature and our re, in our report to Access Health is that one of you know one of those important social determinants of health, not just with COVID, but with health in general, are those living conditions where people live and where people and how they live and where they work and how they get to work and how their kids uh, recreate and what options that they have for clean, clean air and water and, 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 and good food as opposed to uh, bad food. I mean, we, we document that, you know, there are, are too many food deserts in, in Connecticut where people can't get the food that they need to, to sustain themselves in a healthy way. And those things contribute to things like diabetes and we know, and I'm not going to step on Dr. Desire's toes, but we know that, I think we know that one of the, the factors that leads to worse outcomes if you catch COVID would be obesity, diabetes, heart disease, some of these other conditions that, uh, quite frankly, our communities suffer much more from. And so these are all conditions of living, and, and where you live and how you live that are affecting people's health. And it does also affect, you know, their, their, their perception of, you know, what, what is, how they can protect themselves. And we can't wait for people to come to us to get what they need. We have to go to them and, you know, whether it's in the churches, in the barbershops, on the street corners, Wherever it is where our people gather, that's where we have to have these conversations.
2: Chi, where do we start? And and I ask that question because, hearing what you all have mentioned, the journey toward healing involves so much more than just health-related issues. Um, you know, it's about issues with poverty and how we invest in people. Instead of seeing poverty as a moral indictment, we see it as a a system-wide, country-wide failure. It's about providing economic opportunities for people to be able to take care of themselves and take care of their families and not just have health access, but have health choices, quality choices that they can make. So given that the problem seems so big, where do we start? I'm so glad you brought this up and Dr.
0: McKinney was speaking to this earlier. It's We have to look at you know let's talk about social determinants of health right so we know social determinants of health are the conditions in which um, that really come out of our health outcomes right so where we eat pray live work all determining how our health and how healthy we'll be i remember at the start of the pandemic everyone you know a lot of people and just it made me cringe so much was everyone called COVID the great equalizer so it was like, we all, all of us are at risk. You know, we we're all going through the same thing. We're in this together. And while COVID-19 itself doesn't discriminate, right? We know that our society is built upon discrimination and systemic racism. And so we know that the poorer you are, the worse health outcomes you have. The, if you were part of any marginalized group in this country, we know that the sicker you will get. So it went beyond just contracting COVID-19 and, you know, and then now being in the hospital or possibly just quarantining and getting over it. But we knew that Black and brown people were more likely to get the disease because of where they work. Many are frontline workers, where they live. Many of them live in communities where they are essentially in very close type of housing. And you know, where just your surroundings overall. So that is what disproportionately impacted um, the community and made our numbers significantly skyrocket, right? So systemic racism is what was killing people, not actually Mm COVID-19. And so it's all about sort of peeling back the layers and seeing how this problem is not something new. um, It's existed for so long, right? People of color, black people in particular, face the brunt of this disease and continuously still face it if we do not have equitable access to the vaccine. Now we see, you know, FEMA mobile um, uh, pop-up clinics. Now we see a lot of the clinics directly in communities that we serve, right? So I don't have to wait for this appointment in this mysterious place that I don't even know exists. It's directly at my church. It's directly in these places I'm very familiar with. And so if if you do something in a space I'm comfortable in, with leaders that I have known for a great amount of time, it holds a little bit more weight.
2: And I think that speaks to the need to see this for the generational consequences of this. And whenever we come out of this pandemic, how do we prepare for the next one? so that we don't say this was just part of history. Um, We're getting some questions from our guests, and so I appreciate that. And I want to raise this question that's come to us for you, Dr. Desir. If the COVID-19 death rate is higher in Black and brown communities, wouldn't it be true that there could be a greater adverse effect in those communities related to the concerns about the vaccines? Um, And I think the the point there is about if those existing comorbidities make people more prone to negative outcomes, how do we address that in the vaccine? And I know you had your hand up for a different point as well, so feel free to address both. So the...
1: um... So the, the, the comorbidities that seem to make a big difference in outcome in COVID are obesity, hypertension and heart failure. And, and it, it, there, is a, there is a preponderance of obesity in black and brown population and also hypertension for a number of reasons. And, but, but it is what we believe is driving the, the, the negative impact on COVID on people who are, be, who are admitted to the hospital and die from COVID. The vaccine complications are not related to obesity and hypertension. They are related to a very idiosyncratic uh, response to the DNA which contains the vaccine, and that attacks uh, platelets. And it's, a, it's something that is not, doesn't affect black people or white people, affects, it appears to affect everybody equally. And it's very specific and it, has, it would not, we would not have expected uh, black and brown people to have a higher incidence of side effects from the vaccine. And we have not seen that actually, it's not happened. And about a hundred million people have been vaccinated so far. So, so I think it's perfectly reasonable to, to get vaccinated if you're Black or obese or have, or have diabetes or have hypertension, absolutely.
2: Chi, I wanna ask you this question because we are having this conversation in Connecticut because the state is addressing a number of public policy challenges. And one of the challenges that we need to address more is how the history and current practice of residential segregation in this state is making certain communities more vulnerable. And because of that, also contributing to this hesitancy and this distrust of if you're not really addressing the lead crisis or you're not addressing access to clean, safe water or how not having access to stable housing in the middle of a pandemic makes people more vulnerable in other ways, how can I trust you to care about me? How should we address that sort of legacy of segregation and differential treatment as we think about bringing communities together to live a more healthy and vibrant life?
0: Absolutely. We certainly, in many spaces, tap dance around this issue of um, the impact that historical racism has had in where we currently stand. I mean, Connecticut is one of the most segregated states that exist. For such a small state you have so many different um cities and towns and that's by design right so it's so difficult to flourish and foster in a system in a, in a space that's not designed for you to um to succeed for your health outcomes to be um to be better than in the other spaces and so that's why when we you know we look at zip codes right and the, how important zip codes are where you live and its impact that it has on your health you can live in one town in you know five minutes up which Ties to a little bit of what Dr. McKinney was saying, your life expectancy immediately increases when you are in this other space and in, in this better area. We saw a lot of studies that showed that if you lived in a area or a county or a city that had higher pollution rates, you were, I think, more likely to um, contract COVID-19 and have a significant, significantly more side effects from it, right? Some that could, could even possibly lead to death and so that in and of itself is extremely alarming right and so but it's nothing that's new to us overall and so when we have these forums when we have these town halls and these webinars yes they're so impactful and yes they're so important and yes they might be based on COVID-19 but what we always need to do is take that step back and really acknowledge what happened in order for us to be here right COVID-19 is not the first incident or it's not the first public health crisis that has completely changed or brought about the these vast numbers and in, in inadequacies when it comes to health care for black and brown people. I mean, it's been so many different examples in the past, but we never talked about it. We never brought it up. And acknowledgement is the first step. Acknowledge what happened in spite of us being part of that as healthcare care professionals, as clinical providers, whether you you may not have had to be part of Tuskegee experiment, you weren't part of the Henrietta Lacks experiment, but as a health provider, it is very pivotal and it's very important and critical for you to acknowledge that are the folks that came way before you set this foundation of what you're currently now as a leader or a health care provider in this space, having to combat, having to address. And I think that's where, from what we've heard from a lot of our communities is no one wants to acknowledge what's been done in the past. We only want to talk about COVID-19 and what it's doing now nobody ever wants
2: to talk about how we got here. Chenea Anako is Regional Director of Diversity and Inclusion for Trinity Health of New England. Thanks to our other panelists, Dr. Gary Desir, Chief of Internal Medicine at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Fred McKinney is the Highsmith Chair of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Quinnipiac University School of Business. We'll have a link to the video of the full panel conversation on our website. It's ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Disrupted is produced by Anna Elizabeth, James Scoble-Wolf, and Katie Tolarski. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We'll be back next week.